Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. Our generosity was supposed to astound and our determination amaze. Our love was meant to be irresistible. The Church of Jesus Christ would become a beacon of light in a very dark world. It would be attractive to all and it would spread like a virus. That was the breathtaking assignment Jesus gave to the church. But 2,000 years later, this urgent mission remains unfinished. We are affluent, comfortable, and distracted. And today we seem to have lost that fire to change the world. Welcome to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Gabe is off again this week. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio, and those opening words you heard are from Rich Stearns, who formerly served as president of the Christian humanitarian organization World Vision, who we'll hear more from today. Among the phrases you hear weekly on the show is a statement by Pastor Tim Keller about how our cultural products as Christians need to defy and resonate with the culture. Often we offer things that defy the culture but have no appeal to it. Or we so conform to the culture and resonate with it that there's nothing that challenges the errors or problems in the culture. Either way, there's nothing in our witness that penetrates and changes the culture for good. But when we both defy the ugliness of our world and provide truth beautifully, it resonates in a way that is winsome, even infectious. In 2014, Rich Stearns addressed the Q Conference that year. Here's his talk, The Gospel as a Virus. What if we looked at the gospel through the metaphor of a virus? See, here's how a virus works. When a real full-strength virus enters our body, we get infected. It multiplies within our cells, it overwhelms our immune system, and we get sick. And then we become contagious to others, and so the virus spreads to other people and repeats the cycle. But scientists have learned that when a dead or weakened strain of that same virus is injected into a human being, their body will develop an immunity to the virus. That's what vaccines do. Is it possible that we've exposed America to such a weak and anemic form of the Christian virus that instead of infecting our culture, we have actually vaccinated our culture against the real, authentic Christianity? If we're honest with ourselves, we know that Christianity in America is in crisis, and this is not new news. David Kinnaman spoke this morning about the group of people called nuns, and uh, those declaring no religion has increased from about 7% in the early 90s to about 20% today, and about 34% of our young people are declaring themselves as having no religion at all. Four out of ten kids who are active in church as teenagers report no church affiliation by their 30th birthday. And our popularity rating among those outside the Christian faith are about on the same level as those of Congress. According to a Barna study, our popularity fell from an 85% positive rating from those outside the church in 1996 to just a 16% positive rating in 2006, and it's probably gotten worse since then. This is a breathtaking plunge in popularity. If Christianity were a brand, we would be in trouble. Pick your brand. Sears, who do you want to compare us to? 
MySpace, Oldsmobile, BlackBerry, AOL, Kmart, the Republican Party. Clearly, people are no longer buying what the church is selling. Let me read a few quotes from a recent report. Quote, we are described as scary, narrow-minded, and out of touch. Quote, when someone rolls their eyes at us, they're not likely to open their ears to us. Quote, we need to stop talking to ourselves. We've lost the ability to be persuasive with or welcoming to those who do not agree with us on every issue. Pretty devastating quotes. But this was not a report on the church in America. It was a post-mortem by the Republican Party on why they failed in the 2012 election and their polling numbers are better than ours. They got 48% of the vote. Now, we can speculate as to just why Christianity has become so toxic to those outside the church. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave this advice to his followers. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But instead of letting our light shine within our culture, we have been shaking our fist at the culture. We've been angry and strident and judgmental. Just three weeks ago, this was the scene in front of the Supreme Court as angry Christians protested against gay marriage. Now, regardless of where you stand on this issue, I think you'll agree this isn't exactly the best way to let our light shine in the culture. And you can pick your issue. Universal health care, gay marriage, abortion, even gun control. Christians have done a great job of showing the culture what we stand against. So good that they no longer know what we stand for. You see, the problem is that we haven't offered people something to believe in. Let me try to describe for you the original, more contagious form of that gospel virus we call Christianity. You know, just before Jesus left about 2,000 years ago, he gave a spectacular assignment to his followers. He called us to go to the far corners of the earth with the good news of the gospel, to make disciples in all nations, and to build and establish on earth something Jesus had spoken of more than 100 times in the New Testament, the kingdom of God. We were to be his witnesses, his ambassadors in this kingdom-building business. This great commission given to us by Jesus was much more than just some shallow evangelistic campaign to boost our church memberships. No, the spread of the kingdom of God was meant to be nothing less than a social and spiritual revolution that would take the world by storm. This revolution was about restoring, repairing, rebuilding, and redeeming every single dimension of human life. It was a call to show the world a different way to live as forgiven people reconciled to God and reconciled with one another. You see, Christians would go to the cold places in our world, the broken places, the ragged edges of the world, and we would become a healing bomb on the open sores in all of our societies, sores like poverty, disease, hunger, injustice, exploitation. And we would be drawn to the hurting, drawn to the marginalized, the excluded and the discarded. We would be voices of fairness, inclusion, and transparency. In our governments, in our town halls, we would stand as lighthouses of integrity and compassion and reason in our workplaces. We would take up the cause of the poor and the immigrant and the stranger. We would come alongside the struggling. We would fight on behalf of the mistreated and bring real hope to those who had none. You see, our generosity was supposed to astound and our determination amaze. Our love was meant to be irresistible. The Church of Jesus Christ would become a beacon of light in a very dark world. It would be attractive to all, and it would spread like a virus. That was the breathtaking assignment Jesus gave to the church, and he told us that the gates of hell would not prevail against us in this mission. 
But 2,000 years later, this urgent mission remains unfinished. We are affluent, comfortable, and distracted. And today we seem to have lost that fire to change the world. The passion has died down. The trail has grown a bit cold. And we seem to have lost our very purpose in the world. So what would it look like if we could regain that original vision of the kingdom of God? What would it take for the church to rise to that challenge? You know, some fundamental things would have to change for sure. I wanted to offer four prescriptions to you today for the 21st century church in America. Number one, first we need to supersize our gospel, even though Mayor Bloomberg might not allow us to do it. If you think the gospel is about getting people to say the sinner's prayer so they can get their ticket to heaven, then your gospel has a hole in it. You see, the good news of the gospel begins when we accept the forgiveness and reconciliation offered only by Christ. But from there it moves to a lifetime of action faith and action. Jesus sends us to restore and renew our broken world. You see, the Great Commission was a sprawling vision, a sprawling vision of a new kind of human flourishing that would take the world by storm. It was God's invitation for all to come in and to live differently. It was good news. It was a big and attractive gospel. Number two, we need to embrace a more radical faith. You see, Jesus' great vision for his followers was not that we would gather every Sunday in some massive building, stare at a PowerPoint screen, and clap our hands to the funkiest new worship songs. That was not it. And his plan for our lives was also not that we would all become successful lawyers, doctors, teachers, pastors, and business executives, people embracing the American dream while thanking God for all the goodies. That was also not what faith was all about. No, his plan for our lives was that we would lay them down, in service to his kingdom. If any man would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In fact, the single and only reason we exist as followers of Christ at all in our world, the one great purpose of our lives, is to serve Christ and to build his kingdom, to accomplish that great assignment that he gave to his followers. And everything else in our lives should be simply a means to that end. Hear this, it is not our careers, our money, and our talents that give meaning to our lives. It is God's purpose for our lives that gives meaning to everything else. God's purpose for our lives is what gives meaning to everything else. Number three, we need to move from apathy to outrage. Hundreds of millions of children go to bed hungry every single night and lack clean water. More than 25 million people are trafficked in our world today as slaves, And two billion people live in grinding poverty. A staggering 20,000 children under the age of five will die today and every day of preventable causes. If I were filling out the death certificates of those kids who will die today, I would write one word on those death certificates as cause of death, apathy. Apathy. You see, we just didn't care enough. I think we've got to get our priorities straight. I have to ask why we haven't had the same energy, passion, and outrage about these issues as we've had opposing gay marriage. As far as I know, no one ever died of gay marriage. We've got to get outraged about the right things in our world. We've got to see the world as God sees it. We need to love what Jesus loves. We need to value what he values. And we need to let our heart be broken by the things that break his heart. Number four, we've got to get out of the Christian ghetto. We have to get into the messiness of the world if we're going to impact it. We have to stop judging those people outside the church. Instead, we have to get outside of our comfort zones. 
We've got to mix it up with the very people who don't share our faith and who disagree with us. As Gabe said, World Vision is often criticized for working with non-Christian partners. In Myanmar, for example, we work with Buddhist monks to help educate kids. And in Muslim countries, we work with imams to fight HIV and AIDS. Why, some ask, would World Vision work with such groups? In one Muslim country, after conducting an AIDS prevention workshop, the head of the Islamic Council of the country said this, now we talk about being salt and light in the world. As a Muslim, he said, it is a good image, even if this image is Christian. And after 10 days together in training, he said, Christians and Muslims now hold hands. You see, God is at work in the messiness. In Bangladesh, World Vision runs a daycare center at a brothel to care for the children of the sex workers while they're servicing their clients in the building next door. And the World Vision workers there are Muslim, Hindu, and Christian. But the thing we all have in common is our shared concern for those children. What would Jesus do? You see, there's no black or white here. It's only gray. It's only gray. Because we live in this messy and fallen world, but we serve a God who dined with sinners, reached out and touched lepers, forgave the woman caught in adultery, and let a prostitute rub perfume on his feet. So what if instead of actually, instead of talking about John 3.16, we actually did John 3.16 in our world? What if we really started to love the world that Christ died enough, loved enough to die for? What might that look like? Well, since I'm the head of World Vision, I'm going to propose a big, hairy, and audacious goal that the church could tackle. Eliminate extreme poverty in the world in this generation. I want you to imagine that we could get every Christian and church in America to embrace this goal. And I don't want to sugarcoat this. Tackling human suffering on this scale is a massive, daunting, and exceedingly difficult task. The challenge is huge, but so is the church in America. There are 350,000 churches and 238 million people who tick the box Christian when they fill out their census forms. And American Christians are also incredibly deep in talent and skills, medical professionals, business people, media influencers, logistics experts, teachers, pastors, agriculturists, nutritionists, etc., etc. I don't want to suggest to you that this is only a problem that can be solved with money. But let's look at the money a little bit more closely as I do some math for you. The biblical tithe is 10% of our income, but the average giving of U.S. Christians is just 2.4%. Now, that 2.4% equals about $125 billion a year, most of which goes to running our churches and paying our church staffs. But let's say we could increase the giving of American Christians in our country by just 1% from 2.4 to 3.4. Now, I could have asked for the full 10%, but I just want you to see how doable this would be. That extra 1% on $5.2 trillion amounts to $52 billion a year of money that would now be available for us to tackle global poverty. By the way, that works out to about 60 cents per Christian per day. Over a 20-year time frame, a generation, our little kitty would equal $1,040 billion to spend. So let's go shopping for a minute. World Vision estimates that the cost to provide clean, safe water to every person on the planet would be about $70 billion. This one intervention would drastically reduce child mortality. It would allow tens of millions of children to now attend school. It would free up millions of hours of productive time for women. And it would change life in rural communities dramatically. Now, eliminating hunger is a little bit more costly. The UN estimates it would take an investment of about $300 billion, 
over 10 years to increase food production enough to eliminate virtually all malnutrition on our planet. And that still leaves us $670 billion to spend. We've dealt with water and food. Okay, so malaria is one of the biggest killers of children under five in the world. It would cost about $86 billion, it's estimated, to eradicate malaria from our planet. Now, we could give microloans to start new businesses to 100 million potential entrepreneurs for $30 billion, and that would create 250 million, a quarter of a billion new jobs over a decade. And that still leaves us with $454 billion to spend. Just the things I've listed above would effectively decimate extreme poverty and human suffering on our planet. With the money left over, we could plant thousands of new churches, finish translating scripture into every known human language, attack homelessness in our own country, work toward the adoption of all foster children in the United States, maybe even cure cancer, etc., 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 fill in the blank of what we could do with that money. Do you begin to see what would be possible if the church really took seriously the call of Christ to show the world a different way to live? The exciting thing is that we really could do this. We could and we should. Now, let me ask you, how do you think the non-Christians in our country and in our world would react to that kind of faith? Do you think the world might take notice? Do you think they might wonder what motivates people to be so generous, so compassionate, so sacrificial, so inspiring? Do you think people might start coming back to church, our young people might start coming back to church, and maybe they'd bring their friends with them? You see, this was the vision of God's kingdom coming in power that Christ gave to those first disciples. This was the mission that most of them gave their lives for. They died as martyrs. But before they died, they set the world on fire with their faith and with their courage and with the hope of the gospel on their lips. They ran the good race and they fought the good fight and then they passed the torch to us. You see, it's our turn to lead now and it can start right here with us at the Q Conference in 2013. It really starts with us. This is the world that Jesus died for. This is the world he sent us into to transform and to redeem. And yet this incredibly inspiring task, that which we call the Great Commission plus the Great Commandment, remains unfinished 2,000 years after that first Easter. We have everything we need to change the world. We've got the money. We've got the influence. We've got the knowledge and the scale. We've got the mandate. And we've got the Holy Spirit. All we lack is the will. Don't you think it's time to finish the job? It's time for the gospel to go viral. But that means all of us here today will have to become more contagious. Thank you very much. Some great thoughts from Rich Stearns of World Vision on this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Rich has often been part of our Q conferences, and in leading World Vision, Rich has often been challenged, even criticized by some of World Vision's methods, especially working with indigenous people who may themselves not be believers while trying to help the world's poorest. But on the flip side, this has led to many gospel inroads. A few years ago, amid the Syrian refugee crisis, Gabe and Rich sat down to talk about their efforts there and worldwide in reaching those in need. Here's just a portion of that talk. That's what I love about World Vision. Your commitment is to 
serve whoever's in front of you that's in need. They don't have to pass a Christian qualification to receive World Vision services. You're serving every neighbor, and in many cases demonstrating what it looks like to be in a pluralistic setting, um, the way we experience it in America, but in these developing uh, places. So it it feels a little hopeless, though. I mean, i got to say, you watch watch this, hear what you're saying, um, and I'm just wondering, is there any sort of silver lining to this discussion? I mean, is there... How can church, how can people sitting here today even think about this well and try to yeah. try to imagine a future that could look different and how the church can be engaged in it? Well, I've got four minutes to describe the rest of the world for you, but um, uh, I think first I want you to hear that there is really good news about poverty, the silver lining. There's uh, poverty is in retreat in the world, extreme poverty, people living on less than a dollar and a quarter a day, and we're going to put up some statistics here in a minute if we can jump to that slide. Uh, that show where, uh, I think we're a little bit out of order, but uh, it shows that there have been huge declines in poverty. Uh, more than 2 billion people have gotten clean water. Child mortality rates have been slashed in half. Maternal mm. mortality rates have been slashed in half. There are fewer hungry people in the world. But the future of poverty is moving into what we call fragile states, what the UN calls fragile states. It's about 50 countries in the world. You see them on the map. Uh, these are the countries that are broken by war, uh, corrupt or incompetent governments, ethnic tensions, uh, lack of human rights available to the people there. And uh, these 50 fragile states represent just 19% mm-hmm. of the global population, but 50% of extreme poverty in our world. And, and here are these statistics. Again, 19% of the population, but in these countries, it's 77% of the children that are not in school. It's 70% of all the under five child mortality in the world. It's 65% of the people in the world who lack clean water. 60% of the hungry live in the fragile states. And these fragile states uh, collectively are 63% Muslim. Uh, and many of them fall in the 1040 missions window. Mm-hmm. So the future of poverty as we defeat poverty and, and push it back in so many other places in the world uh, the battle is moving to the fragile states. Yeah. That's where the battle's going. So I, I think for many people, because over the last 10 years, there's been a lot, a lot of good organizing around how do we dig wells in Africa and how do we, and, and churches can get their head around that, you know, let's raise $10,000. We see something physical happen that's helping good go forward. But then you talk about solving something like the Syrian refugee crisis, and I'm just like, it's too much. Like, how, how do we engage? I know you, you go to work every day thinking about it, but what is what is the opportunity for us as yeah. we think about the fragile states, 63% Muslim, you see all the orange on the map, and it's really pretty focused. Yeah, and our natural inclination is to turn away. Um, yeah. It's ugly stuff. It's not pleasant. I, I always say I never get invited to dinner twice because this is all I talk about. <laughs> I, I'm really a horrible dinner guest. <laughs> and uh, those of you having dinner with me tonight, please come because there are a few of you. Um, <clears throat> But, you know, Jesus calls us into the margins. He doesn't call us into comfort, into our comfort zones. He calls us out of our comfort zones and into the margins. And again, imagine the opportunity for the church. A lot of of this conference this week is focused on the culture and what they think of us as Christians. Mm -hmm. I want you to think about the opportunity of showing the culture, the Jesus that everybody loves. The Jesus that everybody loves, the Jesus that's with the widow and the orphan and the alien and the stranger and the the people who are sick, people who are in prison. Uh, Imagine if Christians were feeding uh, Syrian Muslims in a refugee camp while ISIS is beheading 
Christians. Imagine the witness that we can have in the world. And I want you to see a really important truth that is, now I'm going to get very theological on you, but um, if we take the great commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, and of course that includes loving our neighbors all over the world and, and the most desperate people in the world, Jesus calls us to love those people, to be tangible ambassadors of his love. So the great commandment is pointing us to these 50 broken countries, the hardest places in the work world to work. Mm -hmm. The Great Commission to make disciples of all nations is sending us to the 1040 window. It's sending us to countries uh, where Christianity is not welcome often. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Great Commission is pointing us to the same place the Great Commandment is pointing us to. And uh, the future of mission for the church in the world in the 21st century, I believe, is converging in these places. Mm. Uh, these are the hard places. It's hard work. It's not easy to do. And you've got to have the will to do it. Uh, my fear is that the church will not rise to this great opportunity and great mm. challenge in the 21st century. And I hope you as church leaders will rise to that challenge and will respond. Well, Rich, thank you for sharing just a little piece of, of the story of, of all the places World Vision's engaging and making us smarter about what's happening in the world and encouraging us for how we can actually engage that tangibly. Let's thank Rich Stearns for being with us today. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that discussion between Gabe Lyons and Rich Stearns on Q Ideas this week. Remember, most of the talks you hear weekly come from our annual Q conferences, a time not just to sit and listen to great thought leaders, but to also engage with them and with others around the goals of staying curious, thinking well, and advancing good. Q2019 is coming up in Nashville in April, and to learn more or to register, visit QIdeas.org and click on Q2019. All the information is there. And before we go, you know, with this being Black History Month, maybe you're wanting to start the discussion and conversation in your neighborhood around the issue of racial reconciliation, but need help in starting it in your community. Well, the week of February 18th, Gabe and his team are encouraging you to host a Q dinner around that topic in your home with a group of friends, neighbors, or other people you know. Q helps to make it more doable through providing a video to assist in the conversation, a guide for questions to ask, and even some menu ideas and recipes. Learn more at QDinners.com. Well, thanks again for joining us. On behalf of Gabe Lyons, I'm Paul Perot. Hope you join us again next week on Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.